Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. It was a Tuesday morning, and I was standing in my parents' kitchen getting ready for my first day of college when I heard my mom suddenly scream in horror. It was Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. And she told me that a plane had just flown into the first tower of the World Trade Center. And I didn't really know at that time what the World Trade Center was, but I knew it couldn't be good. So she went upstairs and I continued watching the television and I saw the second plane fly in to the second tower. Something was definitely wrong. Now, I started second-guessing myself, just thinking, did I watch a replay of what had just happened a few moments earlier? But that day, I just remember feeling the weight of what was happening and just this sense of that our world and this sense of security I had grown up under was kind of being flipped upside down. It's been 20 years since that dreadful day and a lot has happened, a lot has changed. And I'd love to be able to sit down with each one of you and ask, where were you on September 11th? What were you doing? How did you feel? How did you react? But eventually, the question that we always come to after overwhelming loss and tragedy is how do we move on? Where do we go from here? What do we do now? And you know what? I believe there are similarities in what we're currently facing today in the sense that tragedy has struck, lives have been lost, our world has again been turned upside down, and what we thought was this temporary pause as COVID spread around the globe has now become a new way of life. So tonight, I want to start this new series that I'm calling Rebuild, a Nehemiah Blueprint, because as I've been poring over these pages and sitting with these scriptures, I believe there's so much that we can learn from Nehemiah and apply to our lives today that will help us to move forward. So tonight's message I'm calling First Things First, because if we don't get our priorities straight, we're going to end up having to deal with them later at a much higher cost. So if you have your Bibles with me, uh, flip open to Nehemiah. But here's the reason I'm going to ask you to turn there with me. It's because Nehemiah is an interesting guy. He, he's not a priest. He, he's a lay person. He, he's not this set-apart, sacred person. He's this common, secular person, but who God uses to bring about his glory. In fact, Nehemiah has a good government job. He's a cupbearer to the king, meaning that he's a taste tester slash bodyguard because what a cupbearer does is he makes sure that the drink the king's about to drink isn't poisoned. So he kind of sips it. If he doesn't drop dead, then he passes it on to the king. But then he gets word back from back home that Jerusalem's in rough shape, that things are bad. And he knew he needed to do something, and suddenly the joys of the good government job, the high standing, it didn't mean so much to him anymore. His perspective changed. His life changed in a moment. 
So he returns home to Jerusalem to rebuild the broken walls. But you see, this isn't something new. The prophets Haggai and Zechariah had encouraged the people to rebuild the temple 70 years ago. Jerusalem, for that whole time, had been vulnerable to enemy attacks. It was only the providential hand of God that protected them. Yet, they were still afraid to rebuild. Their fear paralyzed them and kept them from moving on. And actually, as we're going to discover in Nehemiah, it was their sin that keep them from being restored to God. So Nehemiah decides it's time to rebuild. And he puts a team together against much opposition, and he does it to restore the dignity to God's people. And as we'll see, they complete this project in 52 days. So 70 years of kind of telling people to, and then Nehemiah's like, we got to get her done. That's his personality. And he gets it done in 52 days. But most importantly, Nehemiah realizes that more than just the walls of the city that needed to be rebuilt, the broken walls needed to be met by broken hearts. That's where the rebuilding actually began is that he realized that people, the people of God, had to restore their relationship with God. First things first. So let's see how Nehemiah starts before any building actually begins. So I invite you to join me in Nehemiah chapter 1, where we'll be starting and reading through verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah the son of Achaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa. Now, that's the winter resort for the Persian kings. So Han and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, the king. I was cupbearer to the king. 
Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and some of the Bible stories that we've grown up on, you may recognize a similar pattern or motif that God's people are in trouble, God places someone in a position of influence, and then God calls on that person to act to bring about God's provision. A few examples include Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, Esther for such a time as this, Daniel and the lion's den, and all of these people God used to show his enduring love and his everlasting faithfulness. And what I love is that there, it removes this sacred secular divide and it shows that God is working through all people everywhere to bring about his glory and his provision. But let me go back to verse 4 for just a minute. Because Nehemiah says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, as I'm reading, I usually skip right over that. But this time, as I've been settling into the text, I'm like, I want to know what some days means. Because is this like one or two days? Is this a couple weeks? Well, the month of Kislev was between mid-November to mid-December, and we're talking about 446 BC here. And then when Nehemiah approaches the king following his prayer in chapter 2, which we'll see in later weeks, it says in the month of Nisan, which was around March or April. So we're going from mid-November to possibly April. So some days is in fact four to six months of sitting there, grieving, weeping, crying, praying. What we see here is Nehemiah putting first things first. Nehemiah shows us to confront our problems with prayer. Is that your first go-to? It's not mine. I, I wish it was. Sometimes maybe I've, I've, I've been able to check that off, but I, usually when I sense things in my gut, I, I want to act. I want to build the wall in 52 days. But Nehemiah, he's going to get to that, but he starts with prayer. Four to six months of it. We're going to see that he's a man of action. He's the getter-done type of personality. His energy and zeal jump off the pages of this book. But first, before any of that, he prays. He's faced with a problem and he prays. Nehemiah models for us the power of a persistent prayer life. You see, prayer has to be a regular habit and part of our daily rhythm rather than a last resort. Even now, we're going to see that Nehemiah doesn't just pray once and then he gets trucking. He sits there for four to six months. And throughout this book, we're going to see time and time again that Nehemiah prayed. More specifically, there are seven different circumstances in which he prays. Chapter 1, he was faced with the problem, Nehemiah prayed. Chapter 2, when he goes to speak to the king, Nehemiah prayed. Chapter 4, when he faces opposition, Nehemiah prayed. Chapter 6, when there's threats on his life, Nehemiah prayed. Chapter 6, again, later on, when they actually threaten to attack him, Nehemiah prayed. Chapter 8, when Nehemiah leads the people in worship, he prayed. And then chapter 13, three times in this book and two times elsewhere, he prays, remember me. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. 
So let's look a little closer at the prayer that he, he prays from verse 5 through to 11. So he starts off similar to the Lord's Prayer, where we have our Father who art in heaven, later on from Jesus. We have Nehemiah saying, Lord, the God of the heavens. Now, side note, I love how Jesus personalizes it. Nehemiah has this old covenant understanding of God, and he's connecting the Lord and the God of the heavens together. But then Jesus is saying, better than that, Father. But what I love about this is that Nehemiah understands his place. He's not starting out crying for help. He, he recognizes his place and God's place. And he appeals to the God of the heavens. And it's also interesting that by attaching the word Lord, or in the original Hebrew, Yahweh, with the God of the heavens... Nehemiah is anchoring his prayer to when God revealed himself to Moses back in Exodus chapter 6, if you want to study that further. This man knows his scriptures. This man knows God. And you can tell that he has this active relationship with God. It's not something that's a last resort. It's something he's cultivated. So when the problem comes, he prays. If you've ever asked yourself the question, why is it so important that I read my Bible? This is why. Because if you don't make it a regular part of your life, you won't be where you turn when trouble comes, or it won't be where you turn when trouble comes. But by making it part of your daily life and by praying in the good times, you'll be able to respond in the bad times. Did the camera die, Trev? All right. <laughs> I just saw him working quickly. But verse 6, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive. This imagery of ears and eyes again evokes the Exodus context where Yahweh saw and heard the cry of the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. So although Nehemiah is a government worker for a foreign king, he understands his identity as part of Israel and the people of God. Nehemiah knows that he belongs to an even greater king. That's who he serves. So after remembering his place before God and God's promises to his people, in the second half of verse 6, Nehemiah turns to confession. And what's interesting is that it's not just for himself. He confesses for his father's family and for the sins of others too. Because he recognizes that while he's still part of the problem, we've all fallen short, that we're all in this together. And I love it because how often do we maintain a posture of rightfulness when in fact we need to assume a posture of openness and brokenness? We should be willing to humble ourselves and ask, how have I sinned against God? Now, that word sin I've used a few times tonight, and it comes with a lot of baggage, but here's my favorite definition of sin. It's anything that disrupts the peace and harmony that God desires for the world. God, it, it, another way of describing it is missing the mark, kind of God's ideal, God's design, and then we kind of go off and miss the target. But anything that disrupts the peace and harmony that God desires for the world. And commentator Donna Petter writes, we as Christians have a responsibility in our own particular cultural context to identify 
and weep with the aftermaths of the sins of our ancestors. A posture of humility will prevent us from smugness, arrogance, and defensiveness when confronted with our own corporate past. As Nehemiah demonstrates, we have a responsibility to own the consequences of the corporate sins from the past. Now, this doesn't imply shared guilt, but it's a prayer of identification that we are all called to participate in this way of life together. God calls us to covenant loyalty. Verse 9 says, If you return to me and carefully observe my commands, I will gather my people and bring them to the place where I've chose to have my name dwell. This is why prayer is Nehemiah's first priority, because he knows that God said, If you return to me. Nehemiah knows that God is faithful to his promises. In the church that I grew up in, the pastor would say, God is good, and we'd all respond, all the time. And then he'd say, all the time, and we'd go back, God is good. And you know what? It's true. God is good. And it's not because things are going our way or because life is good. It's because God is good. That's just who God is. And Nehemiah knows this. God is always faithful to his promises. Nehemiah reminds us that we need to rely on God's promises when we pray. And the way we know God's promises is by reading our Bibles, by digging into the Word. And I love it because Nehemiah has this go big or go home attitude, and he begins asking for big things because his confidence rests in the past record of the Lord's faithfulness. And it rests in the Lord's character. Like Nehemiah, we can trust God based on his past record. And now we have the person of Jesus to look to and follow, to do life with. The suffering of Jesus for our sake is not just something that he did. It tells us who God is. God is always faithful to his promises. 1 John 5, 14 to 15 puts it this way. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. But a successful prayer life and sin don't mix. It's been said that the Bible keeps you from sin and sin keeps you from the Bible. But more importantly, sin keeps us from God. It distances us from God. And it's so hard sometimes to get back. But this is why it's so important to make first things first and why I wanted to start off this whole series of rebuild by focusing on prayer. Because it'd be so easy to kind of come back in here guns blazing and just start doing things again for God. But like I admitted at the beginning, it's been a tough year and a half. There were days where I was drawing near to God and there were days that I was distant. But a successful prayer life and sin don't mix. We can't be living life apart from God 
and a life in blatant sin, the disruption of the peace and harmony that God desires for the world, and expect God to answer our prayers. And this is why Nehemiah creates such a good blueprint for us to follow, because he shows us what it looks like to have this profound knowledge of God's Word and this exceptional ability to apply Scripture to the specific situation at hand. And that's what I'm desperate for. You can't read Nehemiah and not be encouraged to grow in your knowledge of the Word of God. Likewise, you can't read Nehemiah and not long to have the wisdom to apply the specific biblical truths to specific situations. I believe these are essential characteristics for all of us who strive to follow the way of Jesus, whether through ordained ministry or through lay leadership, as Nehemiah was. He's a government official soon to be builder. And the beautiful thing is that God uses him, God uses you, God uses me, he uses all of us for his glory. What Nehemiah does in and through this prayer is anchor the moment he's in in a much larger context of what God's been doing since the beginning. Nehemiah appeals to God to continue restoring his divine presence in their midst. And you know what? That's the good news we celebrate today, that God has restored his presence in our midst, Jesus. And better yet, for those who believe in him and follow him, he gives us his Holy Spirit. And it's not a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So the question is, do you believe him? Have you put first things first? Going back to the beginning, Nehemiah 1.4 says, when I heard these words, so now it's your turn. Now that you've heard these words, I want you to take a moment and ask God to speak to you. Ask him to give you his insight. What's he saying to you tonight? What problems are you currently facing? What do you need to bring before him in prayer? Where is God in your life? Are you moving toward him or away from him? Is there sin you need to confess? What do you need to do to change your life so that you can put first things first? So I'm just going to take a moment of silence so that we can pray, and then I'm going to lead us in communion and invite the worship team back up. But let's just take a moment now and, and ask God, what does he want to say to us tonight? Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word, for giving us a blueprint to follow. And thank you for giving us your son, Jesus. Amen.